Hello and welcome to the season finale of a podcast about murder. I'm Jem and I'm here with Freya, as always, to discuss a mysterious murder case. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm okay. The connection isn't great. That's That's not great. Yeah, we're going to crack on. I'll just pause after every sentence I read, assuming that you might interject. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Today we'll be discussing a case that I've wanted to do for a while. And this is probably the most famous case in recent history in France. So we're going to be discussing the murder and disappearance of the Dupont de Ligonnès family. Mm. As a warning to our listeners, some of the victims in this case are children. So bear that in mind before we begin. There is a lot of information to be found on this case. So if I don't mention something, it's definitely possible that I missed a detail or that I simply cut it for time's sake. Um, And it's also possible that I will shift between French and English pronunciations of names and places, so don't hold it against me, folks. (laughs) That's just likely to happen. I feel like because you actually speak French fluently, you can kind of get away with doing whatever you want. Whereas (laughs) if I was to just pronounce something however I wanted, I feel like you could flame me for that. (laughs) But also like... People can hold you accountable if they know you speak a language where it's like, why are you not making the effort? Whereas it's like, if I don't know how to pronounce this name, if I don't speak Norwegian, I'm this is my best shot, guys. Yeah, (laughs) giving it my all. I see what you mean. Yeah. So without further ado, let's get into the case. On April 21st, 2011, police officers arrived at 55 Boulevard Robert Schumann in Nantes in the northwest of France. The residents of this house, the Dupont de Ligonnès family, had been missing for 11 days. A missing persons investigation had been officially opened on April 19th. Police had already paid visits to the house and found nothing out of the ordinary. On this occasion, as they observed the garden, they noticed something odd-looking. Two dog bowls were placed in the garden near the entrance to the basement. What struck detectives as odd in this scene was that the bowls were placed on top of a wooden plank that wasn't lying flat on the ground. They removed the bowls and plank and decided to dig at the small mound of earth underneath with tools they found on the property. Soon after they began digging, they encountered something hard, cement. Even stranger, however, the cement was still slightly wet. The cement layer was about two centimetres thick and covered a white sheet, which police officers cut open. Inside the sheet, officers found a mixture of earth and what they believed to be quicklime. So, although this is apparently not true, quicklime is commonly believed to speed up Mm. the decomposition of bodies. Yeah, I've heard that as well. And is that the case, though, that it's not true? As I was looking up quicklime, I found this fact that it's like a common belief, but then they said that it's not true. But I don't, I don't know. Okay, because I have heard that. I think John Wayne Gacy used to use lime. So I wonder if it's like... If it is true, or if it's just that so many people believe it and it gets like... Yeah, urban myth. Perpetuated. What it definitely does do, however, is reduce the odour caused by decomposition. Right. So they, And as yeah. officers disturbed the contents of the sheet, they were suddenly struck by an overwhelming smell of putrefaction. Oh. Inside the sheet was a dead body. Over the course of the day, five human bodies were removed from the spot under the terrace. In the early stages of the investigation, they were attributed letters A through E. The bodies were found wrapped in sheets and duvets, which had been bound with grey tape. They were all in sleep attire. Many of the bodies had been buried with pillows under their heads, which were bloodstained. 
Most had been buried with some kind of religious object. Body A was a young man estimated to be between 15 and 30 years old. He was buried with a rosary and a crucifix. Body B was an older woman estimated to be between 40 and 50 years old. She had been buried with a blue plaque depicting a dove and a golden cross. Body C was a young man estimated to be between 15 and 30 with a tribal tattoo on the right side of his torso and was buried with a small statue of the Virgin Mary. Body D was a young woman estimated to be younger than Body B. She was buried with a rosary, a red wooden cross and a medallion with the Virgin Mary on it. Finally, Body E was a young man aged between 15 and 30. Police found cartridges from a 22 caliber long rifle with the last two bodies. The police also found the family's two missing dogs buried under the terrace with the rest of the family. Inside the house, they found enough sleeping pills and various medications to subdue an elephant. Mm. That's me being hyperbolic, but <laughs> there was a lot of sleeping medication in the house. The exhumed bodies were autopsied the day after they were found. The bodies were in various states of decomposition, which made the process of identification hard. DNA analysis confirmed the victims were all related. In-depth medical examinations eventually confirmed suspicions that these were the bodies of Agnès Dupont de Ligonnès, aged 48, and her four children, Arthur, aged 40, Thomas, aged 18, Anne, aged 16, and Benoît, aged 13. The only member of the family whose body was not found in the mass grave was that of the father, Xavier Dupont de Ligonnès. All bodies had suffered gunshot wounds to the head, and it was determined that they had been shot at point-blank range as they slept. Thomas and Benoît had also been shot in the heart. The children had all been put to sleep with sleeping pills. Mm. And yes, had not. Investigators had a hard time establishing a time of death due to the state they found the bodies in. They estimated that the family had been murdered sometime between the 1st and the 11th of April, which is a huge time period that they can't get more specific, like they can't get more specific than that. Okay. Over the course of their investigation, police interviewed friends, family, and neighbors of the Dupont de Ligonnès family in order to get a sense of who these people were and what could have possibly led to the horrific murder of the mother and children. The general impression others had of the family was that they were a perfectly normal, loving, and happy bourgeois family. Arthur, born on the 7th of July 1990 in Versailles, was described by teachers as likable and hardworking. He was described by friends as fun, somewhat of a hothead, and a little wild at times. He had been studying computer science at a school in Vendée, which is about an hour's drive from Nantes, which he would come back to on weekends to work in a pizzeria. He was 20 years old when he died. Is this the oldest child? This is the oldest son. I'm going to go in order of the children and then talk about the parents. Thomas was born on August 28th, 1992 in Draguignan in the south of France. Brap, I know Draguignan. Yeah. We've both been to this place. Yes. Definitely an old <laughs> haunt of ours. <laughs> Which is a very weird thing about this case is that we'll discuss later, but they lived in the south of France in a region that we're both uh, familiar with. Yeah. Thomas was passionate about music and was in his second year studying musicology at a Catholic university in Angers. He played the piano, guitar and drums and was described as sociable, though somewhat shy. And he spent a lot of time practicing with his band or going out with friends. He was 18 years old at the time of his death. Anne was born on August 2nd, 1994 in Draguignan. Anne was in her second year at La Perverie, a Catholic high school. She occasionally worked as a babysitter 
She played the piano and enjoyed playing tennis and dancing. She regularly attended mass on Saturday evenings and would reportedly study a part of the Bible until late in the evenings. She was 16 when she was murdered. Benoit was born on the 29th of May 1997 in Nantes. He was in his third year of La Perverie's middle school. Described as an excellent student, Benoit had a talent for learning languages and playing musical instruments. He was just 13 years old when he was brutally murdered. Born Agnès Audanger on November 9th, 1962 in Neuilly-sur-Seine, Agnès came from a wealthy family. She and her three brothers, Guillaume, Étienne and Bertrand, grew up in Versailles. Shortly after attending a Catholic high school, Agnès met Xavier, also from Versailles, and quickly fell for him. Their relationship was fairly short-lived, however, as Xavier reportedly left her for another woman named Claudia and went backpacking across the United States. Okay. <laughs> Love that reaction. I guess. Just, yeah, okay. I, I'm just trying to follow this weaving tale. Yes. This is, we're talking about the mum, right? This is the mother, and Xavier is the father of the children. Okay. Um, so they were briefly but, but dated. he left her before. They, they briefly okay. dated and then they broke up. And he uh-huh. went to the US for a bit. And then she took him back. You okay. haven't even heard the half of it? That's none of my business. <laughs> I mean, it's about to become my business yeah. because you're about to tell me like <laughs> in, in detail, detail about all it. about these people's <laughs> private lives. So during this time when Xavier was uh, backpacking across the US, Agnes's mother died. And this was reportedly a very difficult time for Agnes, who had sort of dropped everything to care for her mother during the final months of her life. After her mother's death, Agnes met a man named François, with whom she had a short-lived affair. This affair would result in the birth of her first son, Arthur, in 1990. Agnes was left to raise Arthur alone, as François had no interest in being a father. During this time as a single mother, Agnès reportedly developed an interest in photography as well as um, restoring porcelain. Not long afterwards, however, Xavier returned from his trip to the US. The two got back together and Xavier officially recognised Arthur as his son. Okay, so he's a step, you know, technically, but he's going to raise him as his own. Yes, and I think he is... I mean, legally, he is his father. Okay, so he adopted him formally. Yeah. Okay. Agnès was 48 years old at the time of her death. A devout Catholic, Agnès worked in Blanche de Castille, a Catholic school in Nantes. She regularly attended church and was perceived by the local community as somewhat old-fashioned but very kind and charismatic, a mother who obviously cared deeply for her children. Some friends of her children reportedly said that she could be somewhat overbearing at times, although most characterised her behaviour as nothing more than maternal doting. So, now we come to the father. Xavier Dupont de Lyonnais was born on January 9th, 1961 in Versailles. He came from an aristocratic background. He grew up with his mother, Geneviève, and his two sisters, Véronique and Christine. His father, Hubert, was often absent from home as he was growing up, and his mother was described as a strict and pious person. Xavier described his young childhood as being largely defined by religion and his relationship to his mother and grandmother in a blog post. He explained that as a young child, he would get up every day at 6am in order to accompany his grandmother to church before going to school. He was a choir boy, he went on retreats to abbeys as a teen, knew mass by heart in both Latin and French, and would pray diligently every morning and night. Very intense. Yeah. Xavier finished high school a year early, and apparently boasted having an exceptionally high IQ. At some point, his father, Hubert, moved to Africa to start a new family. 
He and Zevi remained relatively close throughout their lives despite this distance. Apparently, one of the reasons for his father's decision to move to Africa was to avoid financial issues and debts he had accumulated in France. Hmm. These financial issues and money management problems, it seems, were a trait that were passed from father to son. Xavier ran a few businesses over the course of his adult life, none of which were particularly successful. I'll discuss the details of the family's financial situation in a little more detail later in the episode. Originally from the north of France, the family had lived in the... So this is uh, Xavier and Agnès and the children yeah. I'm talking about. They had lived in the south of France for some time, where two of the children were born, before spending some time in America. Xavier had had a lifelong interest in America and American culture. He had traveled there on multiple occasions. In 2002, he took his wife and children to North America, where they traveled around in a camper van for nine months. They ended this trip in Miami, where Xavier tried to set up a business called Net Surf Concept in 2003, with the help of a Frenchman known as Gérard Corona, who already lived out there. The company was short-lived and shut down the following year in 2004. Following this failed business venture, they returned to France and settled in Nantes. So I'm going to get into the timeline of events leading up to the murders and following them. Once police discovered and identified the bodies, they began searching for Xavier in earnest, using credit card statements as well as security and traffic camera footage and witness accounts to track his movements. Given that he had almost a week's head start on them, this complicated things a fair amount. This case was obviously heavily mediatized and garnered a lot of attention from the public, so a lot of the information related to this case actually comes from amateur internet sleuths who grouped together and started a digital investigation into the family's background. Huh. And they passed this information on to the police, actually. Right. So this is one of those like real armchair detective. Yeah. Detectives were fully involved in the investigation kind of thing. Yeah. Which I always find quite interesting. Basically, I do. I wasn't going to go into this in too much detail, but it was basically one guy started a Facebook group. Right. Because he was interested in this case, and then so many people were interested in it that they would set up like different groups that were were responsible for different areas of investigation, like looking into old Facebook posts, looking into blog that posts. Is mad. He basically set up his own like detective agency. <laughs> <laughs> That's really crazy. I think I I did watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode yeah. on this case um a long time ago and i feel like i remember they might have mentioned that in the episode i also watched it a long time ago and i don't remember but it seems likely that they would Sounds because familiar i think it was such a huge part of it yeah so even though i might mention events that take place before the police discover the family's dead bodies all of this information is obviously collected after they start the official murder investigation mm. In general, the police's theory was that Xavier was responsible for the murder of his family, and a lot of the evidence collected sort of consolidates this belief, but there are people who believe him to be innocent. We'll get into that uh, a little later in the episode. What's important is that if Xavier was indeed responsible for murdering his family, he was able to expertly cover his tracks, and by the time they began their investigation, he had over a week's head start on them. So what strikes investigators the most as they follow his movements following the murders is that they don't seem to be hurried or frantic. He seems very calm and collected and mm. confident that he can take his time. Okay. So I'm going to retrace some of the key events in 2011. 
So, on January 20th, 2011, Xavier inherits a semi-automatic 22 caliber long rifle from his father. On February 2nd, he obtains a firearms license. This allows him to purchase items such as a silencer and munitions. On March 12th, Xavier purchased rifle bullets. He then registered at La Chapelle-sur-Erdre shooting range, where he frequently met his friend Emmanuel. He visits four times between the 26th of March and the 1st of April. He had gone there with his sons, Thomas and Benoit, who were learning to shoot, and had scheduled to bring Arthur at some point in the near future. On either the 23rd or 30th of March, the sources were a bit unclear regarding this date, Xavier made several purchases from a DIY shop in Saint-Maur. This is roughly a three and a half hour long drive from Nantes, where the family lived. These purchases included a roll of large bin bags and a box of adhesive plastic paving slabs. Okay, so like, just really suspicious stuff (laughs) to buy. I mean, I just feel like you don't need to drive three hours to get that. Exactly, that's that's exactly If you're renovating your garden. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't get like more suspicious behavior in the run-up to your family's murder yeah but obviously a guy buying some bin bags and some paving slabs isn't suspicious in and of itself no (laughs) but (laughs) but there's context yes so now i'm going to run through the month of april day by day so on april 1st which was a friday arthur the eldest son leaves college for the weekend Xavier purchases a bag of quick-set cement, a bag of gravel, a shovel, and a hoe. I mean, again, this could just be someone renovating their house. Okay, but... Obviously, retrospectively, this is incredibly suspicious. Right, but, like, I just want to know if there are any renovations that have been completed on the house other than the digging and preparing of graves <laughs> because if there weren't then come on on the second so this is saturday Xavier purchases four bags of lime each weighing 10 kilos it just gets worse benoit spends the night at a friend's house on the third arthur spends the weekend working at the pizzeria from 11 to 3 p.m. Thomas receives a call from an acquaintance asking if he can bring a dress up to her daughter in Angers, where Thomas studies. He agrees, but asks her not to ring the doorbell when dropping it off. His father is tired and needs to rest. Mm. At around 5 p.m., Thomas leaves for Angers. The rest of the family go out to see a film and eat at a restaurant. Employees at the restaurant note nothing out of the ordinary during the course of their meal. At 10.16pm, Anne posts on her Facebook about the night out. And at 10.37pm, Xavier leaves a voicemail for his sister Christine, talking about the evening. He sounds completely normal and relaxed. Arthur is texting with a friend, but says he's feeling too tired to stay up at 11.03. His friend is somewhat surprised at this and teases him about it. Agnes's sleep-breathing apparatus shows signs of unusual activity at around 3am. Police believe that Xavier drugged the family with sleeping pills and murdered them during the night. They believe that from this point on, any communications other people had with the family via text or Facebook were in fact being written by Xavier, trying to keep up the appearance that all was normal. Very dark. Mm. On Monday 4th, Agnes's work receives a call from her husband informing them that she is sick and unable to come to work. Moments after this call, Arthur's school is informed that he won't be able to come to school due to a moped accident. 
According to the caller, Arthur won't be able to come in for a few days. Anne and Benoit's school is also notified of their absence because they are supposedly sick. Arthur's employer receives a letter this same day. In the letter, Arthur resigns and says he won't be able to collect his salary that month. He explains that he and his family are unexpectedly moving to Australia for his father's work. Christine, Xavier's sister, speaks to him over the phone that afternoon for approximately 20 minutes. She states that the conversation is completely normal, nothing seems out of the ordinary. At 8.50pm, Xavier and his son Thomas go out for dinner that night, not far from Angers, about an hour's drive away from Nantes. Waitstaff report that the two were both fairly quiet during the meal. Sorry, which son is this? This is the uh, second son. Okay, and he's already called in about the youngest, He's called right? in about all of the other children. As they were leaving, Thomas expressed that he wasn't feeling well. Oh. Tuesday 5th, Thomas' friends say that he was behaving oddly the night before. He apparently told them that something strange had happened to him at the restaurant, that his father had taken him home, and that he had no recollection of the evening after that. Very strange. Very strange that he has been... This is somehow separated from the rest of the family. I, I know what I'm thinking about it, but I wonder if now's the time to get into it or if we should talk about it later. But I, I don't know. I'm sensing um, something. Let me just wrap up with the last uh, yeah, moments cool. we hear from Tuma and then let me know. That afternoon, a purchase is registered from Agnes's credit card for a hand trolley. So I wasn't sure how to translate this, but it's essentially one of those things that like movers have. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That actually has a name in English, I'm sure, but I don't know it. Because in French, it's called a diable. Like what you get at Ikea, where you put like your Ikea stuff on. Are you talking about yeah, that? Yeah, like it's got a small thing with like two wheels and a, a long handle. Oh, kind of. yeah, yeah, to move like boxes. Yeah. So not quite the same thing as what you get at Ikea, but more like a thing you'd have in a warehouse. Yeah. Got it. Just a thing to help you move heavy objects around. That is purchased with Agnes's credit card. Okay. A photo is also posted from her Facebook account with the caption, My Garden Blooming. Mm. And that was posted in English bearing in mind that she's a French speaker. At 7.30pm, while Thomas is playing video games at a friend's house in Angers, he receives a call from his father who explains that he needs to come home immediately. His mother has been in a serious bicycle accident. Thomas gets on a train around 10.30pm. Around midnight, he texts his friend saying, Are you still playing? I'm watching Midnight Express with my dad. Thomas receives a call that night. He doesn't pick up. Hmm interesting amount of accidents and illnesses befalling this family you know it's not impossible that you know a flu can run through a family but you know a moped accident followed by a bicycle accident is pretty unfortunate we have to accept that that is pretty wild so what was your theory about Duma that you wanted to um... i mean i was just thinking right off the bat because i know there's some question about like the innocence of the father mm. for me there's no question <laughs> but i i feel immediately that thomas is his favorite and i feel the like what? there's some reluctance mm. so it's possible yeah. that his illness is a drugging and then a decision not to go through with it you know mm. i feel like he's going the the I want. I keep wanting to say Javier, but that's like Spanish. How how do you say it in French? <laughs> Xavier, Xavier, Xavier. Yeah, I feel like Xavier is like yumming and ahhing about whether he should or needs to 
um, remove mm. Tomar. He started, begun almost the murder and then pulled back and decided yeah. not to in this instance. And he's sort of going back and forth about it. That's my instinct. What some people point out in re- in relation to this whole situation is that, you know, Zevi comes from this sort of noble aristocratic background where like lineage is incredibly important. And right. obviously I don't think there's any difference between a child that is your biological child and an adopted child but it's worth noting that Tuma is his oldest biological son right so may have more like inherent emotional value to him because of his his upbringing so yeah again yeah that's sort of feeding into my narrative quite nicely on wednesday 6th two friends of Anne's passed by the house and noticed that all the shutters are closed which is unusual they drop by the house again later that day and notice a paper taped to the door Written in Agnes's handwriting, it asks not to ring the doorbell as the family are all sick and bedridden. Letters dated the 6th are sent to the children's schools and Tuma's landlord. They have the same basic message. Having been relocated urgently to Australia for professional reasons and having left with my wife and children, I am writing to inform you that our son slash daughter will no longer be attending classes. Agnes's employer also receives a letter of resignation. The friend Tuma had been playing video games with texts him, asking if he's alright. He receives a reply that reads, I'm sick, I'm not coming back. The next day, the friend receives a text that reads, I'm running out of battery, my dad's going to get a charger. Friends note that the texts they receive from Tuma during this time aren't written in his usual style and don't sound like him. On Thursday 7th, at around midnight, Xavier sends an email to a man named Christian, asking him to take over his various websites for him. In this email, he asks him to answer before 5pm as he's moving to the USA with his family. During the night, Xavier's phone allows police to track his activities. He seems to be heading out to a particularly isolated location uh, that is conveniently located near to a stream that leads to the river Erdre. That afternoon, Anne's friends receive a text from her stating that she is sick and won't be able to see them for a few days. Later that night, Xavier's phone activity shows another trip back to the isolated location at approximately 9.23pm. Friday 8th, Arthur doesn't turn up to work. On this day, Xavier writes a letter that will be received by family and friends. So I'm going to read a bit of it now, and I've cut certain parts out of it for duration. So the letter reads... Hi everyone, huge surprise. We've left for the USA rather urgently, in particular conditions that we'll explain below. You're receiving this letter by classic post because we have no other means of communication. No email, no text, no phone. And this will be the case for some years for security reasons. The moment you receive this letter, we will no longer be in France and won't be able to come back for an indeterminate amount of time. Brackets, a few years. You must be wondering what this all means. Here's the story, at least what we're allowed to tell you. This letter is the only one authorised, with certain extra details for some. It has been written under observation. When we started our business in Miami in 2003, we were put into contact, by the person who helped us set it up, with the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, a sort of American drug enforcement brigade with networks in other countries, who were looking for a Frenchman to infiltrate French nightclubs to get information about drug trafficking and money laundering without drawing attention. Through La Route des Commerçants, spending every evening in a different town with an official reason to get in touch with nightclub owners to offer them a spot in the leisure section of the RDC, I, brackets, Xavier, was the ideal candidate. 
After being tested and briefed, I accepted to work for the DEA incognito, with the obligation to keep everything secret, especially from the kids. This is the real reason we came back to France instead of staying in Miami, and not for vague reasons about so-called, quote-unquote, dangerous vaccines for the kids. That those who never believed this stupid excuse feel reassured. They were right. Lol. (laughs) Okay. He wrote... Wait, hang on. (laughs) Sorry. Lol was written in the letter. It was written LOL, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay, all right. Go on. Everything had been going well in the nightclubs for the past seven years until now. With the information that I, bracket Xavier, collected for years, I became a key witness in a future trial with major implications for higher-ups in the international drug trafficking business. The trial should happen in the USA in the next few years. The date hasn't been set yet. Where things get complicated is that, for some time, certain clues led us to believe that I had been found out. Unfortunately, these theories were confirmed yesterday. The situation has therefore become potentially dangerous for us here, and we had to take emergency measures. The American government has taken us in and transferred us to the USA under new identities that must obviously remain secret. The letter goes on to apologize for the abrupt news and assign certain people specific tasks. Namely, to keep collecting Xavier's unemployment benefits and to empty the family's bank accounts in order to pay off as much as possible of what Xavier owes people who lent him money over the years. He also asks for people to come and empty the house, take any furniture or belongings that they want, and get rid of the rest. He also explains that they were lucky enough to find a person willing to adopt both of their dogs already. Most importantly, he explains the official story that the family has left for Australia for Xavier's work, and he asks them to propagate this lie as much as possible and not reveal the truth in order to help cover their tracks. Very strange. To clarify, Xavier's business, La Route des Commerçants, is um, he would sort of work with various hotels and would often travel around the country visiting hotels for his work. So he is suggesting that that work of sort of being in contact with the touristic industry i guess and moving around all the time would be beneficial to sort of being a an agent for the dea okay that's not that's not wrong um you know that's sort of believable (laughs) in a way Mm. what do you have i have thoughts on this letter do you, I mean, let, I want to hear yours first. Though. I mean, my thoughts. I mean, come on. My thoughts on this letter are: this is the biggest pile of sh- shit <laughs> I've ever heard in my whole life. Like, obviously, all of this is utter bullshit, right? Like, okay, I could be, I could have egg on my face when you tell me that the DEA comes out and confirms <laughs> that all of this is true, but like, I find it incredibly hard to believe and also it's like but it's so convoluted it's like if you think so yeah if you if you think that for example john benet ramsey's parents had something to do with her death and if you think that the letter that they wrote was them coming Mm. up with a story that was crazy that was a crazy story right like coming Mm. up with like a ransom of like some international like terrorist organization and stuff like that like that was a crazy story this is i mean compared to this though that's like the most logical thing i've ever heard exactly this is another league exactly yeah that's my thoughts on it it is absolute tripe There are two things that strike me in this letter is that it's like this is supposedly the last 
contact this family is going to be able to have with their loved ones for a while. There is no trace of any other member of the family writing in this. Every single I is followed by brackets Xavier. There's no, oh, Agnes wants to talk to her brothers and say goodbye. There's nothing about the kids saying goodbye to their family or friends. Nothing. So I find that kind of telling. Secondly, this sort of DEA super spy cover is a bit out there, to say the least. Um, But Mm. what I find particularly telling is that it's like, oh, and that's the real reason we had to come back to France. Not that embarrassing reason that you all believed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. There's a little like extra unnecessary piece of saving face in there, mm. which, yeah. There's just so much like unnecessary detail in it as well. Yeah. So that letter was written on the 8th of April and received a few days later by friends and family. At around 7pm on the 8th, Xavier is seen emptying Thomas' flat in the student residence he lived at. On Saturday 9th, the letters uh, destined to family and friends are sent. Xavier returns to Angers to finish emptying Thomas' flat. He stops at a chain restaurant and uses a credit card to pay. He then goes to Arthur's place and drops off the keys and a month's rent in cash. Although he, Thomas and Benoit are expected to turn up for an inaugural shooting class at the shooting range, they never show up. Sunday 10th. At 8am, a traffic camera registers Xavier's car at Angers. He stops by Thomas' place a last time and drops by Arthur's as well. Some of Thomas' possessions, such as clothing, bedsheets and toiletries, were found in bins near Arthur's school. Xavier stops for lunch in a restaurant at 1.15 near Moléon. That evening, he signs into a hotel room near La Rochelle under the name Xavier Ligon, which he pays for with cash. Mm. Xavier's IP address allows police to confirm his location in the Charente-Maxime department at 11.47pm that evening. So just confirming that he is in this hotel. Monday 11th. Using phone records, police are able to pinpoint Xavier's movements at 9.15 that morning, heading towards Rochefort. Anne and Benoit's school receives the letter explaining that the family has suddenly relocated to Australia. Christine receives two envelopes from her brother. One contains the letter that describes the family's intention to move to the US. The other contains two credit cards, one in Agnès's name and one for the company run by Xavier called Cellref. Xavier spends the night in a hotel room not far from Toulouse Airport under the name Xavier Ligon. He pays by card. Mm. Tuesday 12th. Xavier heads towards Avignon, although seems to make a detour to Arles. This strikes investigators as odd, as his car is later seen in Verden, next to a building owned by the Jehovah's Witnesses. He is seen talking to a man who is driving a Mercedes with Spanish license plates. Xavier checks into a hotel in Ponte at 6.30pm under the name Xavier Laurent. He uses Agnès's card to pay for the Prestige Suite number 69 and dines in the hotel restaurant. Restaurant staff describe him as well-dressed, relaxed, and polite. They said he seemed like a food critic. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I imagine a food critic as feeling very at ease and sort of in control Mm. in a rest. You know what I mean? Yeah, This what they're trying to convey is this guy feels almost like at home in his situation. He's Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is like every day for me. I'm just chilling. And he actually told a member of staff, I feel good here. I feel at home here. Right, yeah. So, damn, I mean, well, pop reserve judgment for the end. 
<laughs> but like, yeah. It's the fact of like reserving the prestige suite as well that really does it for me. Like the audacity. Mm. I mean, uh, once again, like we're laughing. It's not. It's not. Well, it's funny just like it's what's so, happened, um, but it's like arrogant. Yeah, I think it's it's outrageous. It makes you like mm. you know. So it's what's happened isn't funny. <laughs> if you see what I mean. No. I think this is just behavior that is so far outside the realm of anything that I can understand that (laughs) it's like ludicrous to me. Right. Wednesday 13th. Police lose track of Xavier's movements on this day. The trail picks up again that evening when he checks into a hotel in Seine-sur-Mer under the name Xavier Laurent. As I mentioned briefly earlier, the Dupont de Ligonnès family had lived in the VAR for an extensive amount of time. Mm. So at this point, Xavier is now in territory that he knows very well. Right. I think it's also fair to say, and many others point this out, that this would likely be a very sentimental region for Xavier to be in. Right. When he was younger, he spent holidays at a great aunt's house in the south, and this is where he married Agnès and where two of his children were born. Mm. So what many people who talk about this case tend to stress is that the VAR almost seems to be this like idyllic place that represents a happier, simpler time to Xavier. And that may be one of the reasons that he headed down there. Okay. I'm um, sorry if this if I missed this, but you're talking about the police following his his trail. Is this so? This is obviously like, way after they discover the bodies. Yeah. And so, how many days behind him are they when they're picking this up? So this is on the 13th. The bodies were found on the 21st. Wow. Okay. So, so this is a full yeah. week. So they're quite a ways behind even, him. Yeah. They haven't even found the bodies. All of this is happening. No. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I, I suspected as much, but I, I wanted to, you know, just conceptualize how far behind his movements yeah. they are. Which is a crazy amount of time. Yeah. I mean, the time really is of the essence when you've committed a crime like this. But then, again, the like, he is not stressed. Yes. At any yeah. moment. It's, he's very confident that they're not going to be found, is what I'm thinking. Um, and yeah. it, and that if they when they are found, it, he's going to be long gone. Like he's he's yeah. he's confident that he's got the time to piss around. Yeah, or he's innocent <laughs> <laughs> and just taking a road trip with his wife's credit cards. On Thursday fourteenth, Xavier checks into a Formula One hotel on the A8 motorway under the name Xavier Dupont at three thirty p.m. He takes thirty euros out of a cash machine at five fifteen. He is seen doing so on camera. That evening, he meticulously deletes all online messages, accounts, and photos. Or so he thinks. As I mentioned before, a large part of the investigation was conducted by amateur internet sleuths who were able to uncover years of messages sent by Xavier. So obviously not a great job at deleting the digital paper trail there. He sends an email to two friends at 8.33pm from the email address of one of his businesses. Part of this email reads, We are proceeding with the final cleaning of all easily tracked means of communication of the family we are handling. There is no point in addressing emails or contacting them via the site Route des Commerçants, which we have just erased for security purposes, or contacting them on any other email account. The family we are managing is forbidden from contact via electronic devices. Both adults and teenagers are often too tempted to share details of their new lives. Only traditional means of communication will be allowed, controlled and transmitted by our agents. Hmm. <laughs> Very dubious look on your face. <laughs> yeah. 
On Friday 15th, Xavier connects to the internet for the last time at 10am. At 10.20, he is seen leaving the hotel in his car, carrying a computer bag, a travel bag, and a suit bag, carrying a book under his arm. His whereabouts for the next five hours are a mystery. Although he has many acquaintances in the bar, none of them report a visit from Xavier at this time. Xavier is next seen at 4pm in the hotel car park. Given that checkout time for the hotel would have been in the late morning, investigators are unsure of what he's doing back at the hotel, perhaps collecting some belongings he left in his room or hid in the hall. He is seen a short time later at 4.13pm on the hotel's video surveillance footage carrying a long object in a bag. Police theorise this could be a rifle. Xavier is seen exiting the hotel and leaving the car park on foot. This is the last trace police have of Xavier. Almost exactly at that time, police in Nantes are investigating a missing persons report. At 4.57 and 4.58 respectively, police try to contact Xavier and Agnès with no response. So it's an incredible coincidence that Xavier seemingly drops off the face of the earth at the exact time police begin their investigation into the family, even though it will take them some time to find the bodies of Agnès and the children and realise that their missing persons case is actually a murder. That is a strange coincidence. Do we know who filed the missing persons report? If I am not mistaken, but I might be misremembering this, it's one of Agnès's brothers Okay. who are very concerned to not have heard from her or the children in some time. Mm. So, on the 21st, the bodies are found... On the 22nd, autopsies are performed on the victims found at the house. According to the autopsy, the victims had been drugged and then shot with a 22 caliber long rifle, the same weapon Xavier had inherited from his father. The prosecutor allows the bodies to be buried shortly after the autopsy, a decision some say casts doubt on the identity of the victims, as family members were discouraged from viewing the bodies. Police issue an international arrest warrant for Xavier. On the 28th, the family's funeral is held in Saint-Félix Church in Nantes. More than 1,400 people attend. The bodies are cremated and buried in Noyers-sur-Sorin, near to where Agnès was born. On the 29th, police search the VAR extensively for any trace of Xavier. On June 23rd, speleologists search the many caves in the 15-kilometre radius around Roquebrune-sur-Argent, Xavier's last known location, to no avail. The trail goes cold. So what are you thinking at this moment in time before I get into the theories surrounding this case? Yeah, basically, I'm just not buying any of this, any of the sort of trail that he's trying to set up. It just, Mm. it's very much like a trail you're trying to set up and a story that you're trying to craft. There's no, like, none of it rings true for me. None of it feels right. Um, No. The only thing that you could cast that you could have some doubt on whether whether he's the mastermind behind this is that is his incredibly calm demeanor and his confidence that he's not going to be caught Mm. but at the same time i think if you are able to go through with a crime like this there's something a little wrong with you (laughs) and as a result it could be very reasonable that you might appear calm in the situation because obviously you're not all there if you're able to murder your whole family um Mm -hmm. you know so then it's not so strange not only murder them but plan it out in meticulous detail i don't think there's anything in like you said something about the bodies doubt about the identities unless there's any 
unless anyone can suggest um, an exact match of these people to like some random people that would be buried in this garden, then yeah, but I can't really see that. So apparently what people find suspicious is that no one was allowed to see these bodies to confirm the identity of these victims and like were almost actively discouraged from doing so. What I would say to that is police probably don't want to inflict the horrifying vision of someone's like days old corpse on a loved one. Yeah. If they are almost certain that this is that person. Many, many days, like lots yeah. of time. And I, I think if I had a family member or something that was went missing and then two weeks later they were like, yeah, we found that person murdered. I would not want to mm. see. I wouldn't want to be the person that sees that person no. like that at all. Um, I would rather trust the process of identification. And if there needs to be someone, it better not be me because I like I would want to remember that person as they were before. I don't want that to be my mm -hmm. last memory of that person. When you say it depends how you say it, doesn't it? If you say no one was allowed to see the body, it sounds I don't suspicious. think they were like forbidding people from doing it. I don't think anyone was pushing that hard to Yeah. To see that because no one would want to see that. Exactly. So that doesn't seem super suspicious to me, but if you f if you say it in a in a voice where it's like <laughs> where it seems suspicious, then yeah, of course it seems suspicious. Yeah, but I do think what's more likely that the f five bodies that were found on the property are five people who lived there, and the police don't want to cause unnecessary harm to their loved ones by showing them this. Or that that family completely disappeared and five other bodies were buried there. Completely unrelated. Mm -hmm. Like, what's more likely between those two scenarios? I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm sold. I'm, I'm on your side. <laughs> it's, it, is, it does seem far-fetched to me. Because unless you can sell me a story where there's five other people that could be in this position then mm. that it's them i'm going to get into the theories now first the, the theories that support uh xavier's guilt in this case and then we'll talk a bit about ones that support his innocence few and far between as they may be so by far the most popular theory and one that is supported by the police's investigation is that xavier planned and undertook the murder of his family by himself as the investigation built and gained interest from the public, several details emerged about the Dupont de Ligonnès family life that many think support this theory. First of all, a loss of faith. As I mentioned earlier, Xavier's childhood was extremely influenced by Catholicism. In fact, Xavier's mother was the founder and leader of a small group of devout believers, of which her son and some of his friends, including his future wife Agnès, were members for a time. This group, named Message d'amour et de miséricorde, or Message of Love and Forgiveness, has been called a cult by some. Xavier's mother, Genevieve, claimed to receive visions from God and the Virgin Mary, and in general the group believed that the Antichrist's imminent arrival would bring about a liberating apocalypse. 
Having grown up in this intensely religious environment, Xavier experienced a loss of faith that profoundly affected him. This crisis of faith obviously weighed heavily on Xavier, who seemed completely adrift and at a loss, while also being at times very scornful towards those in his life who remained devoted to their faith, including his sisters and wife. Hmm. This sudden divergence in beliefs drove a wedge between Agnès and Xavier as she remained a devout Catholic, although not a member of his mother's group necessarily, but just very steadfast in her religious beliefs. Yeah. Xavier would often post questions on online Catholic forums, under false names, obviously. One particular exchange on these forums often stands out to investigators, in which Xavier asks about the significance of sacrifices within Catholicism in May 2010. He asks, Good evening, all. Can someone explain to me, simply but truly, why we always speak of sacrifices in religion, namely in the Catholic religion? I'm not talking about sacrifice in the sense of voluntary deprivation, but in the sense of offerings to God, approved by him. In what way does God need, or want us, to offer him the death of an animal, a child, a man, of one son? Thank you for your answers. So, he was obviously extremely preoccupied by this thought, because when no one else seemed to want to engage with it on the forum, he posed as another internet user answering the question, in the hopes of prompting the discussion. This interest in sacrifice is obviously particularly interesting when thought of in relation to the way the bodies were all found with religiously significant objects. Right. Could Xavier have perceived the murder of his family as a necessary sacrifice? Or was this his way of sort of reconciling his actions? To add to this uh, intense crisis of faith, the couple had been experiencing financial difficulties for many years. Mm. Despite portraying themselves as a modestly wealthy upper-middle-class to upper-class family, Xavier had run a string of fairly unsuccessful businesses and had had to borrow money from both friends and family members on numerous occasions to help make ends meet. Since December 2010, the rent on their house hadn't been paid and the landlord was growing tired of Xavier's excuses. Xavier had been crunching the numbers and had realised that he wasn't able to support his family in his current state of affairs. Between private schools, extracurricular activities, holidays, housing, and everyday necessities. Damn, I think if I hadn't paid my rent in, like, four months, mm. that's like, someone would have moved to evict me by rent. <laughs> I, like the, I like how you say the landlord's getting a bit, like, frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, four months is a long, I mean, five months even at this point. A journalist named Anne-Sophie Martin even revealed that Xavier had reportedly calculated each child's individual cost since their birth. Arthur, 106,600. Oh my god. Thomas, 80,800. Anne, 63,000. And Benoit, 38,300. Which is a, an extremely grim thing to do. It's very... Uh, it's very grim for a parent to be like what has what have these people like cost me yeah i can't imagine doing that i could understand looking like trying to make a family budget mm. but this is not what's happening here yeah it's not the same as being like okay my current outgoings for things related to arthur this as yeah. well as this you know that would be that would make that would be more just like practical outgoings yeah calculating but like yeah this doesn't seem like that 
Xavier spent most of his weekends and free time either traveling for work or shut up in his basement office, where he would reportedly stay up very late listening to country music, according to one of the children's friends. These money troubles obviously also weighed heavily on Agnes. A friend of Agnes's revealed that uh, she would regularly have to fend off repo men and debt collectors who would turn up to the house in the middle of the day. These financial problems dated back to at least 2002, as Agnes had complained about her husband's failed businesses to a friend and on internet forums. Agnes was apparently extremely upset by Xavier's mismanaging of the family's finances, particularly because she had inherited 3 million francs from her father in 1998, which Xavier had squandered on failed businesses. The financial problems and differences in faith weren't the only problems weighing heavily on the couple, as both Agnès and Xavier had had extramarital affairs at one point or another in the past. Agnès spent a lot of her time chatting with strangers on the internet, particularly on the forum doctissimo.fr. It's there that she expressed her frustrations with her marriage, saying that she felt invisible to her husband and undesirable. She reportedly wrote on one occasion, He thinks only of work and doesn't see me anymore. He's getting home late tonight and there will be only one thing I want to cry, help. Mm. Acquaintances often noted that Xavier had a tremendous amount of influence over Agnès. In a positive light, this could be spun as her being very enamoured with him and under his spell. In a more negative and perhaps realistic light, this highlights a very controlling relationship dominated by Xavier. Agnès expressed a lack of control in one of her diaries in 2002. Quote, I don't feel well. I don't feel like my own person. In 2005, they decided to separate. Agnès went to the police to file a complaint against Xavier, reporting that he had been physically violent towards their eldest son, Arthur, and that she feared this could happen again. A few months later, however, they reconciled and got back together. Agnès began having virtual affairs via webcam and started having an affair with one of her and Xavier's mutual mutual friends. When she divulged this affair to Xavier, he was furious and felt immensely betrayed. Xavier never forgave Agnès and their friend for their affair, and wrote obsessively about it in reproachful emails over the following years. On top of this, Agnès's doctors reported multiple health concerns. She had problems with her thyroid and was fairly anxious. She was a self-proclaimed internet addict and also claimed to suffer from bulimia. She struck her doctor as extremely lonely and isolated. However, things started looking up for Agnès as she was going to begin working full-time in September 2011, which, which, which she was very excited about. Tragically, she would be brutally murdered before she had a chance to start this new venture. Despite his fury at Agnès's affair with his friend, Xavier himself was no stranger to adultery. In 2009, Xavier reached out to an old flame, Catherine. They began having an affair which lasted about seven months. At this time, Catherine was a successful 49-year-old business manager. She was, in fact, one of the people who lent Xavier money, up to 50,000 euros, in fact, to help with his businesses. When their relationship ended, she asked for her loan to be repaid, to which Xavier replied with a five-page long email on January 14th, 2010. And I'll read some excerpts from that now. I'm ruined, like I've never been before. I have four months of unpaid rent. I couldn't pay Arthur's school. My car broke down. I had to ask mum for money to buy the kids Christmas presents, and I have to pay her back. I've got debt collectors on my ass. I could be kicked out of my home by the end of winter, and I don't have enough to get through the end of the month of January, even if I make new contracts with the few hotels that are open. I don't sleep anymore. I'm kept up each night with morbid ideas. Set the house on fire after feeding everyone sleeping pills, throwing myself in front of a truck so that Agnes gets 600,000 euros. 
I wake up each morning with an anxiety attack, some of which last until midday, with difficulty breathing and tachycardia. I don't know anything worse than these anxiety attacks. I've never had a nervous breakdown. I wonder how this is possible, because I don't know a single person who could live with stress as bad as mine and not fall into a pit of depression or consider suicide. I don't want this family life with Agnes, who I don't love. My children are almost all grown, and two of them no longer live with us and are morally independent, even if I'm the one who pays. I want a new life, and I can't imagine it without you. In any case, my current life will be over in a few months if I don't find €25,000 immediately. I can't keep living without paying my rent, the electricity, the water, the schools, etc. Catherine didn't change her mind, faced with this letter, and asked Xavier to pay her back by July 2010, which Xavier agreed to in a signed letter. However, as July approached, Xavier sent her another letter explaining his dire financial situation, begging her to forgive his debt. Prior to the events of April 2011, Xavier contacted four women. Catherine reportedly received a letter she deemed threatening and reported it to the police. The three other attempts at communication were rather more nostalgic. Véronique was contacted by Xavier who wanted to meet up and talk about the good times they shared when they were younger and wanted to send her some old photos. Véronique apparently made up an excuse not to meet with him in person. Another woman named Catherine who had dated Xavier when they were young, received a Facebook message from him, which she did not respond to. The last woman he contacted also wanted nothing to do with this man she had briefly known over 20 years ago. It just seems like he's coming apart at the seams. Yeah. Everywhere. <laughs> like, in all ways, this guy is just collapsing from the inside. Which is like, it is a dire situation to be in. Mm. I don't think the solution to that situation is mass murder. No. With these contacts with these women there seems to be a desire as i said before um to sort of relive the good old days and Mm. go back to a simpler time on top of the financial religious and relationship crises xavier had also began drinking heavily something he was trying and apparently failing to keep from Agnes. so all of these details highlight a man who is very dissatisfied with his life and who seems to feel trapped in an inescapable situation Mm. who perhaps viewed murder as the only possible way out. With all of this added insight to the case, many feel even more strongly that Xavier was the killer. What do you think? I mean, yeah. <laughs> None of like, this is like... What you've been, for the last, you know, 10 minutes, you've been <laughs> just adding more reasons to believe that he's done this. Including what I find very disturbing is that detail in the email to his mistress, where he's like, had thoughts before of almost the exact situation that played out of like feeding everyone sleeping pills and killing them in their sleep. Exactly. So a few people also believe that while Xavier was responsible for the murders, he did not act alone. Given the organization, not to mention the incredible, the incredibly intensive physical work of digging the grave, binding the bodies and burying them, Some speculate that Xavier did not act alone and was aided by one or several accomplices. Some speculated that Agnès could have helped her husband plan and carry out the murders, then was either voluntarily or unknowingly killed as well. Supporters of this theory notably point out that Agnès was the only victim not to have traces of sleeping pills in her bloodstream. They also point to Agnès's supposedly fragile mental state and Xavier's controlling nature. Members of Agnès's family obviously don't believe this theory, and many people who knew Agnès personally knew that she was an incredibly devoted mother and loved her children more than anything, which is why I personally don't find this theory uh, believable. Mm. 
There was also very little to indicate that she had experienced any suicidal thoughts or desires up to that point. It is known that a few people came by the house in between the time Xavier is known to have left and the discovery of the bodies, mostly friends or family who had been sent keys by Xavier and who were checking out the house. One of those keys is still missing today, so that raises the question of who has it. Does it? Couldn't he just have it? I suppose so. He either he, him or and a potential accomplice. A few elements point to the fact that someone may have intervened on the crime scene after Xavier is supposed to have left. The mop investigators theorised had been used to cover up any bloodstains in the house was still damp. Given that Xavier would have left the house approximately 10 days prior, this seems unlikely that it would still be damp. Yeah. Additionally, if you'll recall, what alerted investigators to the burial site of the family was the fact that there was damp cement under the earth. Given that quick dry cement had been purchased, it seems unlikely that it wouldn't have set before investigators turned up at the house. These two details indicate that perhaps another person or persons were helping Xavier carry out this murder and aided him in his disappearance. Furthermore, Agnes and the children interacted with several people via call, text, or Facebook following their deaths. Is it possible that Xavier was managing all of these communications on top of burying the bodies, emptying his son's flat, and shopping for supplies? Or did he have help? His own phone records don't necessarily show any intense activity during this time. Although it's certainly possible, and I would say even plausible, to imagine that he could have multiple other phones that weren't registered to him. Hmm. So I guess what that says is, on his phone that the police know is his, there's no nothing to indicate that he's contacting another person to help, like, orchestrate this. Yeah. Despite this theory of a potential accomplice, no one has been named officially by the police. So I'll now briefly discuss uh, theories surrounding Xavier's innocence, which are primarily supported by his uh, mother and sisters. So the main thing that Zevi's sister calls into question is the identity of the bodies found at the house. Given their relative disfigurement and the fact that family members were discouraged from seeing the bodies, she believes that they are not the bodies of her sister-in-law and niece and nephews. She believes that the relative speed at which they were allowed to cremate the bodies supports this theory as well. She also claims that Xavier had a long history of back problems and finds it near impossible to believe that he could have dug the grave and moved the bodies by himself in the time period allotted. Hmm. She believes that her brother and his family are at the centre of a huge conspiracy that has deliberately made him look guilty. She namely points to the wet mop, the wet cement, and the difficulty Xavier would have had digging a grave and burying the bodies, given his history of back issues. So their main theory... And I think this is somewhat supported by something he said in the letter, which was that in order to make their disappearance believable, there would maybe be this theory supported by the media that he had done something to his family and that under no circumstances were they to believe that this was true, no matter how much the evidence pointed to the contrary, which seems <laughs> okay. like a very thinly veiled attempt to control the situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not compelled, to be honest. To me, I don't know how you then um, make that work with the fact that he's seen on video driving about after his family has yes. supposedly been killed by himself. Yeah. 
So Christine firmly believes the theory provided by Xavier himself, that the family are in witness protection somewhere in America. She believes that the corruption case Xavier had been working on undercover obviously went further up the chain than even he had suspected, and that the higher-ups are manipulating the media and pushing this false story about the family murder. She notably points out, and this is an interesting detail, that there is no tangible proof that Xavier committed the crimes in the sense that there are no fingerprints of his to be found anywhere on the bodies or like the tape or anything like that. He can wear gloves. He could, yeah, exactly. There are ways to not get fingerprints (laughs) and stuff. Like you just have to have like the bare minimum forethought. And I'm sure you can prevent it. Obviously, you know, most people, people do slip up and that's how you catch them but like it doesn't always happen it's also like given that this is his house it's not that suspicious however what i will what i will give to this is what i will concede is that typically i would like some physical evidence in order to conclude Mm. that someone is has committed a crime normally this is a a case where there is so, like, it's entirely circumstantial, but mm. the circumstantial evidence is <laughs> overwhelming. Like, I've never yeah. seen so much context and story. And the evidence is, there is evidence, but the evidence is, yeah. well, I'm, I'm just trying to say the same thing. It's circumstantial evidence, like his behavior, his buying of things, his preparations, his stories that he's spinning. Mm. That is all obviously not physical evidence of a murder, but there's so much of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I'm like, I do find that a compelling detail because, yeah, I would expect there to be some kind of trace that he was linked to this. But I would also assume that it's like, if you find his hair on a duvet that was in his house yeah that doesn't prove or disprove anything so i'm just going to briefly talk about some reported sightings and theories as to xavier's whereabouts now some believe that xavier is hiding in a monastery somewhere in august 2011 investigators started looking into religious communities in the var with little success Mm. but some do theorize that this would provide a perfect opportunity for him to sort of just disappear off the grid because these communities aren't particularly involved with the outside world. And he has a phenomenal knowledge of Catholicism that would really... And the area. Help. Yeah, and this area. Having been in the environment in some, in, you know, in some ways mm. myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture as far as to say it would be easy. But it would be definitely mm. doable to disappear in the south of France. Like the terrain, you know, you could have like Mm. hidden communities. Yeah. And they would be very remote. I think religious community makes sense to me because he probably knows a lot of people in that community and can blend very well into it. If he's found an isolated community that's a monastery where there are like 10 monks that live there. Yeah. They don't, you know... They're not necessarily keeping up to date with. <laughs> They're not checking their iPhones. What's going on like in Apple the outside? News. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like seeing this guy. But I also think if police looked into this and didn't find anyone, I don't think he could have hidden that well. Like, mm. I don't know if the bond of like Catholicism is enough 
for you to like lie for this random stranger that's turned up in your community no probably not so like i think he probably would have turned up if he but i can admit maybe for a bit he was hiding out there and left i think it's possible he could be moving yeah the man who helped xavier establish his short-lived business in florida frenchman gerard corona was reported to offer a wide variety of not-so-legal services to clients, according to an article published by François. Among these services are tax evasion, setting up tax havens, and offering clients the possibility to access their funds without being traced by others, including law enforcement. He also reportedly helps clients set up accounts abroad and obtain credit cards anonymously. Given the wide variety of services offered by this man's businesses and their intensely shady nature, as well as the personal connection this man has with Xavier, many believe that Xavier escaped to America with this man's help and may perhaps be living somewhere either in South America or the USA. Yeah, it reminds me of like in Breaking Bad, they have this this kind of service that can like just remove you you like Mm. you call a number and say a code phrase and basically Mm. you can be like you can get a new identity and it costs obviously a lot of money they can like just scrub your identity and move you somewhere else um that just kind of reminds me of that i do find this this theory compelling but i do have to wonder where he would get the funds for this that's because i was thinking yeah in Breaking Bad, they have to pay like four million. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think he has that if he's talking about like financial woes. Yeah, if he's like, I'm going to be kicked out of my house next month. I don't think the person like that could even, you know, without a trace, as in like there's no unless sudden this guy that's been his, taken like, out. His criminal friend like owes him big. Yeah, but what could he possibly? Or is like a you know way closer friend than we realize. <laughs> I guess it's possible this man has a deep bond with him. Maybe they're in love. (laughs) Adding another dimension to the theory. Another much-liked theory is that Xavier committed suicide. The last known sighting of him is on the security footage of the hotel parking lot, which shows him walking off into the mountains, carrying a covered item believed to be a gun. Mm. Many believe that he found a cave somewhere in the mountains and killed himself. Yeah, I, I'm i drawn to that yeah. as a realistic theory. I think it's very difficult to disappear, um, despite the case I just made passionately for disappearing in the south of France. I think <laughs> it would still be, like, really hard to completely mm. disappear. It is pretty hard to completely disappear a body of yourself if you kill mm. yourself, though. So, um, but I mean, like I said, in this kind of in this kind of terrain i think it would be yeah. it would be possible because very soon there would be like animal activity and very quickly you could basically be reduced to nothing yeah or you would be reduced to something unrecognizable mm-hmm. it's also like it's the typical thing to do once you're finished with the f- with annihilating your family if we look at you know other cases like this it's quite yeah. common to then kill yourself mm well, many compare this case to um, John List, who's an American mm. killer, who famously just, like, was found 
many years later living yeah. a completely uh, fabricated mm. life. I just feel like he doesn't have the financial means to actually like start a new life. Start a new life. And in 2011, with so many people paying attention to this case, mm. I feel like, you know, he would have been noticed. I do find it very plausible to think he went on a last tour of like some happy memories. Yes. Went and found a cave mm. and shot himself. And as you were saying, between like animals finding the body, as well as like, you know, there have been some bad forest fires mm. in the South in recent years that could have just completely, depending on where his body was. Mm. In July 2015, a French journalist reportedly received a photo of Arthur and Benoit sitting at a dining table with the words, I'm still alive, written on it, signed by Xavier Dupont de Ligonnès. The sender reportedly hasn't been identified, but I don't know if I believe this to be the work of Xavier. I mean, this kind of a case would attract a lot of, like, yeah, that kind of attention, um, and a kind of faked thing would be something that I would definitely expect. Yeah. On October 11th, 2019... A man believed to be Xavier was arrested in Glasgow airport. This sent French media into a flurry as they began reporting that Xavier had finally been caught. It was ultimately revealed that this man's fingerprints were only a very partial match for Xavier's. His eye colour also did not match and neighbours of this man denied the possibility that he could be Xavier. I find it interesting that you can have someone who's a partial fingerprint match for you. Crazy that you sort of look like this guy and your fingerprints partially match. But further DNA testing confirmed that this was not Xavier. Xavier Dupont de Ligonnès eludes capture to this day. What do you think is the most likely scenario to have occurred? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've been sort of covering it as we went along, but yeah. <laughs> I definitely think he killed his family. I don't think that any other explanation is very compelling. I think you see clear signs of preparation, clear signs of trying to cover one's tracks and clear signs of p potential hesitation as well over some... Mm. over completing the crime then you see someone escaping and then i think probably committing suicide although i suppose there's also the chance there's always the chance he could still be out there i don't see how anyone could argue that he's innocent to be honest but that's just me there's just the thing is that the counter theory relies solely on this weird email that he sent that was explicitly like, people are going to make you believe I killed my family and I didn't. So don't believe that. And it's like, if that's true, then incredible job on behalf of the media and this conspiracy that this person has spoken about. I think it's more plausible that they probably just did that and are trying to pretend that they didn't. Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly what someone who killed their family would say. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, yeah. So I feel like if that's your basis for making some kind of counterpoint, counterargument, it doesn't really... I mean, it holds up in the sense that you can't 
argue with anything if your whole defense is based on anything you tell me is made to convince me of something that I know is a lie. So anything that you tell me is just a lie and I will not accept the truth. (laughs) And in that case, you can never be proven wrong. But that's just not a very strong argument to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think there's a lot of that going around these days. (laughs) So, in preparation for this episode, I read Le Mystère du Pont de Ligonnès by Béatrice Fontenot and Jean-Michel Laurence, which I highly recommend. Um, We sort of mentioned this uh, earlier in the episode, but Netflix's series Unsolved Mysteries also covered this case for an episode a while ago. If you're interested, you should check it out. Um, And that's it for the final episode of season six. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Great final episode. There was so much (laughs) to talk about with this case. So much, yeah. But I'd be interested, as always, to hear what other people think about this case. If you have any other theories or thoughts regarding Xavier or what happened uh, to this family. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you listen to these. We're also on social media if you would like to connect with us there. We'd love to hear from you. On Instagram, it's a podcast about murder. On Facebook, it's a podcast about murder with no E. And you can always send us an email at a podcast about murder at outlook.com and find us on YouTube by searching for a podcast about murder. Yes. Very well researched, by the way. Um, this is really long. I mean, I think I think I'm going to try and keep it as one, but it's going to be a long one. A l- very long. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're all, almost two hours now. So, uh, yeah, we'll I've see. got an hour 46. That said, when we recorded Charles Sobrage, it edited down to like by quite a yeah. lot, it edited down by about 40 minutes, of which is insane to me yeah. because I don't think I cut anything major. So it's just fast, no. really, isn't so it? So I don't know what we were doing. <laughs> no idea. Anyway, um, thanks for listening, and I'm uh, going to be back sometime. No promises, no guarantees, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> All right. And that's a wrap on season six. Farewell. Fare thee well. Fare thee well.